When the COVID-19 pandemic hit the U.S., a researcher who focuses on sickle cell disease was concerned. Patients with sickle cell disease can get quite ill. We were very worried that patients with sickle cell disease would be at particular risk because it appeared that COVID was not exactly like influenza and in fact might be worse. So she assembled a team to create a registry of sickle cell patients who have contracted COVID-19. We had a lot of concerns about how our patients were going to do if they contracted COVID-19. We had little, if any, data to help inform that understanding. And so starting it really quickly was a key aspect in being able to help providers and patients understand what the outcome could be. Learn about a sickle cell COVID-19 registry that's now international in scope and hope of providing better outcomes. Inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Back in October 2019, CTSI Discovery Radio focused on sickle cell disease and research aimed at better understanding it. We encourage you to check out episode number 66 of our show to learn more. Since then, our nation has been rocked by the COVID-19 pandemic, leading one of the expert guests of our previous show to become concerned and take action in hopes of providing better outcomes for sickle cell disease patients who contract the coronavirus. Dr. Julie Panapinto is a professor in the Department of Hematology and Oncology, Division of Pediatrics, at the Medical College of Wisconsin and a key member of the MACFUN Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders at Children's Wisconsin. Back in mid-March, as COVID-19 began impacting the U.S., a family conversation got her thinking. My sister's child has inflammatory bowel disease, and on Twitter, she liked a tweet by a COVID inflammatory bowel disease registry that was set up pretty quickly to start voluntary reporting of cases so that the providers and patients and families could learn a lot about the disease. Wondering how her niece would fare if she were to contract COVID-19, Dr. Panapinto thought a registry was a great idea. They already knew in this short period of time that so far nothing suggested that patients were particularly at higher risk, but the focus of the registry was to learn a lot more because no one had seen this virus before and I think many people were scared. Learning more about the registry for IBD patients, she decided a registry of sickle cell disease patients with COVID-19 would also be beneficial. When I saw that, I realized we really could benefit from learning more about COVID and sickle cell 
disease. And in fact, I had started to email some of our national organizations on what should we expect, because it was just starting to hit the big cities on the East Coast. She believed proactively collecting data could possibly lead to better outcomes for sickle cell disease patients who get COVID-19. We know historically patients with sickle cell disease can get quite ill. We were very worried that patients with sickle cell disease would be at particular risk because it appeared that COVID was causing pneumonia, which for our patients, similar to influenza, can be quite problematic and can result in significant and severe illness. And she believed it was important to act quickly. We needed to come together as a community of sickle cell disease providers to try to understand what people were learning as they were taking care of patients with sickle cell disease and COVID across the world. And we needed to learn it very quickly. If providers would report cases seemed to be the fastest way that we might be able to share information on an almost immediate basis. In identifying the need for the registry, was she initially thinking in terms of benefit for the sickle cell community, for the medical community, or both? It really was both. I think my perspective changed when I realized my sister as a parent and even my niece as a patient, they were afraid. I was afraid. We were afraid. And so could we channel some of that fear into knowledge? Knowledge to help researchers and healthcare providers to get experiential knowledge, right? So evidence from experience to get better at what we do with this illness. So not only could we as providers come together to report our experience, which can turn into data that's evidence, we would be able to externally face this to the patient and family community so they could not only see it for themselves, but their providers could bring knowledge to them at the bedside and in the clinic that says, here's what we know so far about sickle cell disease and COVID. She says this is a process that typically takes years. Because even simply to collect data, then analyze it and publish it doesn't happen quickly, especially for something that no one's ever heard of before. And I really felt like the registry lended itself to that. Are sickle cell patients more vulnerable for contracting COVID-19? I don't think we believe patients with sickle cell disease are particularly more or less likely to get this illness. We felt that if and when they did get sick with COVID, they were much more likely, because of the sickle cell disease, to become significantly ill compared to other people who did not have COVID. Another early concern was possible increased risk of exposure if a patient needed to enter the healthcare system. We know now that it's very safe for our patients in general to enter the healthcare system when they need it. And there are other options as well. We were able to pivot to telemedicine so that if it wasn't essential that a patient be seen in person, that we could handle their care via telemedicine to protect them from going out at all when they were safer at home. Okay, back to the registry. Once Dr. Panapinto learned about a similar effort, she began working on a sickle cell COVID-19 registry. I'm fortunate to have a really awesome team in my most immediate world, people doing research and have different skill sets in those areas, in addition to collaborators that help us. She knew what was needed first. The first thing we knew we needed was a website to collect and collate data and she knew who to reach out to. Brad Taylor, who works in bioinformatics, I knew I'd need his help from the standpoint of managing data, for example. Brad Taylor is the CTSI's Chief Research Informatics Officer, who says when asked to help, he didn't hesitate. The initial request came through on a Friday at like 9 o'clock at night. 
my initial response was, how can we help? Because, he says, his biomedical informatics team is uniquely qualified for just such help. We have a variety of talent on the team, from database management to application development to survey development to website development across the research spectrum. Brad and his team got to work, providing key components to facilitate the registry Dr. Panapinto envisioned. I did a search for them to secure the website URL for COVID sickle cell. So we've got the URL. Now we need a website to facilitate collecting important information about those COVID sickle cell patients. With website development underway, Dr. Panapinto and her team began focusing on content for the registry's survey. From there, we moved to team members developing what I call a data collection form. So we had to write out the information we thought was vital to collect and tailor that to symptoms specific to sickle cell disease. What were some of the parameters for information she wanted to collect in the registry? really wanted this to be a five to ten minute data report. We didn't want it to be so onerous that it would take someone a half hour, an hour, or something like that. So we didn't want time spent entering cases to be the main deterrent. We realized we needed high-level information, but enough detail that it would be useful, that it doesn't identify any patients, because we wanted to be able to display this to the world. Here as well, Brad Taylor's biomedical informatics team stepped up to collaborate. From a research perspective, the biggest question is what are we going to be asking of our investigator community to understand the progress in some of the effects of the disease? And so we relied on clinicians to tell us what are the most important questions that need to be answered so we can create that survey. A key team member focused on the data collection survey is Dr. Amanda Brando, Associate Professor, Department of Pediatrics, Division of Hematology and Oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and another integral member of the MacFund Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. Dr. Brando was key as a clinician and someone who helps us take care of sickle cell disease patients. I needed her brains, too, to help me develop that form. And so it really was, again, that team thing where you're better together. Dr. Brando says she's not at all surprised by Dr. Panapinto's interest in creating the registry. Dr. Panapinto has always had amazing foresight where she can really look at a problem and really think about how could we leverage this opportunity to improve patient care. She's always thinking about how does this connect back to the patient and how can this be helpful for both patients and providers. She didn't hesitate either when Dr. Panapinto approached her about joining the effort. She conceptualized this idea and really started moving it forward to becoming a reality. She immediately pulled us all together to really mobilize all of our individual expertises. And she knew that acting quickly was critical to potentially save lives. We knew that there was urgency, not only being able to establish the registry, but to be able to disseminate it to providers that were taking care of these patients. We had a lot of concerns about how our patients were going to do if they contracted COVID-19. We had little, if any, data to help inform that understanding. And so starting it really quickly was a key aspect in being able to help providers and patients understand what the outcomes could be. We'll hear more from both Dr. Brando and Brad Taylor later. Before the registry website could go live and collect data, an institutional review board had to review it. Dr. Panapinto explains how this happened quickly as well. 
because this is a de-identified database, voluntary reporting, and no protected health information is collected, this was considered not research and didn't need IRB approval and was sort of exempt from that. So we needed IRB to do that for us, and we needed them to do that quickly, and they did that within two days. Exactly how quickly did the registry become a reality? The short answer vary. So we did all of this, get a domain name, establish a website. We had to have a data collection form that moved to electronic input to getting IRB approval. And all of that happened starting March 14th. And by March 20th, Brad Taylor had said, boom, we're live on the website and people can start entering cases. Everyone just said yes. And really what we needed to begin learning as quickly as possible. It was unbelievable. Very cool. Six days? Very cool indeed. Now that the registry is collecting data, why is it important for physicians to report when a sickle cell patient has COVID-19? We ask that providers report the cases because they have access to the medical records and they're reporting on the patients that they're taking care of using the details information related to that patient and the COVID illness that they experienced. The commitment by the sickle cell disease community to make this happen has been unbelievable and really the commitment to reporting because we know nothing right now. So the hope is researchers can use the data to discover answers. Answers leading to better outcomes. I'm awed that people still continue to support the registry because the more cases we get reported, the more we can learn, such as what are the true risk factors for a patient with sickle cell disease and the risk of death related to COVID. As far as where cases are that have been recorded. We have over 23 states reporting data and eight countries in total, so it's really international. The worldwide participation comes as no surprise, as this was intended to be an international registry. It really was. The pandemic seemed to be hitting the United Kingdom, Italy, and then obviously Africa, where the majority of people with sickle cell disease live. We were very interested in trying to capture cases there, too. So we really wanted those cases because we thought we could learn a lot in the U.S. and really across the world. And Dr. Panapinto's humbled by the medical community embracing and sharing the registry. We immediately hit the ground running, sharing information about wanting people to report and support the registry through our national organization. So we sent information about the registry, links to the website, and asked for them to promote as they're able to. People did that, and I think that's humbling to see through voluntary reporting how much we can learn simply by people being willing and able to share their cases and experiences of COVID and sickle cell disease. Interest has even come from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention helped us get to a report published in one of their journals that outlines outcomes in sickle cell disease and COVID. And in fact, our evidence from our registry led the CDC to be able to list sickle cell disease as one of the diseases at risk for severe disease related to COVID. So that stands on their official recommendations. And the CDC's support has led to grant opportunities. The Doris Duke Foundation gave us an opportunity to apply for a grant to help support the registry. And so we also did that and found out that we had received funding to support keeping the registry going, but also to add a site in Ghana, Africa, to try to collect information on patients with sickle cell disease and COVID who are pregnant. Dr. Panapinto says there are many ways information collected in the registry can be used going forward. 
we're getting close to being able to set up more sophisticated data analyses where we take information, for example, risk factors such as age or having a history of frequent pain events in the past. Those risk factors influence how severe your COVID illness will be. And as more cases are added to the registry, more will be learned. Ongoing support and continuing to report cases helps us learn a lot about COVID, especially as it's an ongoing threat to our patients. It's the patients and families and their experiences that are helping us learn. And so we owe it to them to make this data available readily, widely, and freely to the public and continue to advance the science in sickle cell disease and COVID. We heard earlier from Dr. Amanda Brando. When Dr. Julie Panapinto began assembling the collaborative team that would create the sickle cell COVID-19 registry, she immediately included Dr. Brando, as the two have partnered on extensive research related to sickle cell disease. had the ultimate privilege of being able to work with Dr. Penapinto from the time I was a general pediatric resident at Children's. I've benefited from Dr. Penapinto's expertise and mentorship in order to move research ideas into reality that then eventually can come back to impact patient care. So while the registry was new, their collaborative process wasn't. My experience working with her on this registry was not different than my prior experiences because she pulled the team together and had them engaged in the project and what she did in this context as well. I have seen her do this in many avenues and she has an amazing talent to do things such as this. While her contributions were many, she shares two key areas that she and her cohorts focused on in the effort. First, we mobilized our ability to all give input into what we call the case report form, the questions that we ask providers to answer that then become data in the registry. So we're able to provide input from our areas of expertise to ensure the data that we're collecting will be informative and feasible for providers to enter in a relatively short period of time. And second, we also thought about how we would disseminate these data. And because it was sort of a rapid reporting mechanism, we also wanted to rapidly give the data back to the public. We'll learn more about how and where data is publicly shared in a moment. But ahead of that, we asked Dr. Brando why she believes it's important for providers to report sickle cell patients with COVID-19 to the registry. The reason why it's important is it allows us to collect outcomes of our patients that are infected with the virus so we can better provide care up front. We can look at patterns of outcomes, understand how patients are presenting with COVID and what is the mortality of our patients. It's important for providers to continue to report their cases so we can inform COVID-19 care now and in the future because it's certainly not going away in the near future. And the registry not only helps providers and researchers to increase their knowledge of COVID-19. I have had the opportunity to show the registry to patients and their parents to have them understand what the outcomes are because there's a lot of worry if my child gets COVID-19 what's going to happen and how worried do I have to be and so it really has helped patients as well. So when should cases be reported? Is the registry only for sickle cell patients with confirmed cases of COVID-19? Correct. We ask providers 
providers to only report cases of confirmed COVID-19 as measured by a laboratory test. We then ask them to report the outcome of that individual person after they have had resolution or near resolution, or unfortunately, if they have passed away. If they're reported too early in their course of illness, then we don't really know the full spectrum for that individual patient. As I'm sure you've noticed, it's not patients themselves who report cases, but rather... The person that completes the case report form can either be a provider or somebody who is acting on behalf of the provider. We don't have patients putting their data into the registry. It's provider or provider proxy reported data. Why don't patients report their own cases to the registry? We designed it. All of our questions targeted to providers, and there's a lot of complex medical language and complex questions. So the provider would be the person reporting, not the individual patient, just so we could get more homogeneous data. But while they don't report their own data, there are ways for sickle cell patients to help in supporting the registry effort. We have made everything public. Anybody can look at the data. We also disseminate it via social media and quite widely to patient groups as well. So patients can ask their provider to input their data into the registry. And that's a way a patient could advocate because their data is contributing to understand the impact of COVID on sickle cell disease. We'll be sure to post links on our CTSI website, along with the podcast of this show. As Dr. Panapinto shared earlier, it was always a goal for this to be an international registry of cases. Dr. Brando says it's definitely achieved growth inside and outside the U.S. It's been really interesting to see it grow on our registry. Pretty interesting representation throughout the world. So we have cases reporting from Canada, Brazil, Nigeria, Greece, Oman, Switzerland, and Sweden right now. So we have lots of areas aware of our registry now and contributing cases, which makes it a much richer data source. And there's a collaborative goal among the worldwide users of the data. The collaborative goal is that all providers of sickle cell disease want to help each other understand the outcomes and ultimately help our patients. So I think everyone has the goal at the forefront of how do we make this better for the collective whole patients and providers. Which could lead to future international research. If we have enough data from other countries, it could potentially be possible to look at outcomes and how they vary based on country of origin. That's something that could occur in the future if this grows to be even a larger international effort. But Dr. Brando says there's already key findings based on the cases of COVID-19 reported to the registry so far. First, our most recent data is we have 269 cases reported into the registry, and we have had 16 deaths in that population of patients. And it illustrates that patients with sickle cell disease have higher rate of mortality. A second key finding. Almost 60% of our patients present with pain. And certainly we don't hear of pain being a presenting symptom in people who don't have sickle cell disease that are infected with COVID-19. Third, the most severe types of sickle cell disease, we expected to be affected the most severely by COVID-19. However, we have seen people that have a less severe form of sickle cell disease have very severe COVID-19 infections and pass away. That was something we weren't necessarily expecting. And one other key finding. The 
distribution of the age of the patients that are becoming infected and quite ill is a little bit younger than we would have expected based on the data we're seeing in the general population of people who have COVID-19. We're seeing an increase in distribution ranging from 20s to 30 years of age, which was interesting to us as well. Plus, more data collected means even more findings. As we get more and more cases and we're able to do more analyses, we may have the ability to contribute even more knowledge above and beyond what we would consider now to be more descriptive data and really try to do some statistical analyses based on complications a patient has or has not had. And just like the registry itself, Future findings resulting from it will come through collaborative team science. To be able to conceptualize, design, build, execute, and collect data in an extremely short period of time is simply amazing. Our data has been able to inform patients and providers, and it's further confirmed by the CDC using our data from this registry to ensure that people with sickle cell disease have the best outcomes if they do unfortunately become infected with COVID-19. To better understand how biomedical informatics played a vital role in creating this registry and in medical research in general, let's learn more now from Brad Taylor, Chief Research Informatics Officer for the CTSI. Biomedical informatics is looking at medical record information collected during the life of a patient, data that's been collected in the electronic medical record system and ancillary systems. And the data is collected by the CTSI bioinformatics team for use in research. Leverage, all of that data is collected in electronic medical record, and we're able to extract that information and create complex phenotypes around different disease groups and provide large volumes of data so we can look across big patient populations as opposed to individual patients. The data collected is then de-identified to protect patient privacy. We do look at the HIPAA safe harbor identifiers that could identify a patient. We have algorithms de-identifying those so that we can still continue to connect all of the longitudinal information while making sure that we preserve the privacy of that patient. The sheer volume of data collected on even an individual patient can be extraordinary which is why biomedical informatics deals in the realm of big data. If we think about a genomic sequencing of an individual, there's 3 billion data points for one test. Connecting that with all of these individual data points and making sense of it, that's what we think about from a big data perspective. And the ability to collect big data can help advance and speed up medical research. By looking at all of these different data points, the hope and the dream is to understand precursors to disease and be able to deflect future disease states within our community. The big data is stored in the Clinical Research Data Warehouse, where it's used for research of all types. We are supporting cancer research, cardiology, retrospective reviews, and looking at different phenotypes, social determinants of health. We try and serve as broad a population as possible in our investigator community. Reflecting on the sickle cell COVID-19 registry, Brad Taylor says it's important in medical research today and for future discoveries. Our 
our clinical research data warehouse is focused on our local health system, whereas a registry like this is looking at a broader population, not just focused on southeastern Wisconsin. We're trying to have a broader patient base to be looking at so we can make more informed decisions. So for anyone listening who may have an interest in becoming part of the research enterprise, he encourages you to consider biomedical informatics as a career path. Biomedical informatics as a career path is a combination of healthcare, information technology, computer science, this field has grown leaps and bounds, and we're just in the early stages of it. From a career perspective, somebody has got a great opportunity to advance themselves, support research, and advance science. Biomedical informatics is a phenomenal opportunity. I think it's the wave of the future. And on that positive note, or possibly a call to action, we've reached the end for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to all of our guests, Dr. Julie Panapinto, Dr. Amanda Brando, and Brad Taylor. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month, so make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows online and on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.